I'm Brett Chang. And I'm Jay Rosenthal, and this is your Peak Daily for Monday, February 28th, where we cover the biggest stories in Canadian and global business, finance, and tech, all in less than seven minutes. Jay, we've got a, a Ukraine-heavy edition here, and I think it's what everybody is watching. And so I guess we'll start by saying, you know, our thoughts and prayers to everyone out there. It's a terrible conflict and, uh, you know, really rooting on the Ukrainians. But uh, it's 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 really tough to see if you've been watching the, the news. It has been hard to watch. And I was just downtown, so we're recording this on Sunday. I was just downtown, and right around Young Dundas Square, there was a rally for Ukraine. So my difficulty getting around was pro-Ukrainian. So it was, uh, it was good to see the show of support in downtown Toronto as well. Well, and I've got a bit of a personal connection to this. So I went to high school in Etobicoke and my high school was predominantly Ukrainian. I think we have one of the largest Ukrainian diasporas. By the way, that's an interesting fact about Canada. You know, Canada has the largest diaspora of Ukrainians outside of Ukraine and Russia. Isn't that crazy? That and is. And, and just a, a quick kind of historical fact as to why that is. So in the turn of the century, there was all this land that we were trying to settle out west and it was the prairies. It was like, and so they needed people who could farm grain. In Europe, Ukraine is the breadbasket uh, of the continent, and so they thought we should bring a bunch of Ukrainian people over, and that's what they did. And then now we have this this this, this diaspora, which is a, a super interesting history, including some of my wife's family under less bread raising circumstances. But yes, they came around the same time and then headed directly to Northern Ontario. So yes, absolutely. Uh, deep Ukrainian roots uh, here in Canada. So it's it was, it was nice to see the show of the show, show, show support in downtown Toronto as well. Yeah, absolutely. And then just on a, a brighter note, before we get into the podcast, say happy belated birthday to my mother. It was her birthday on Saturday. So I love you, mom, and happy birthday. And that's that. You know, we should do more of these birthdays, by the way. I know we we, we promised to do that. In uh, every episode description, there is a form that you can fill out for us to shout out a special occasion. So just take a look at that, and, and we'll start going through them more frequently. Well, Brett, aside from your, your mother's birthday and war in Eastern Europe, what do we have for Big Pals today? It's all over the place. For our first story, <laughs> war talk. For our second story, nurse shortage. And for our third story, more sanctions. For our first story, Russian tanks rolling down highways, missiles raining down on cities, and soldiers readying for battle have dominated the For You feeds and TikTok users this week as the war in Ukraine becomes the first major conflict documented on the social media app. Brett, what's happening on TikTok and the war? Well, JD, do you use TikTok at all? Now you're just outing me. Uh, a very little bit, I would say. <laughs> well, I use TikTok a lot. I'd probably say it's 70 to 80% of my media consumption happens on TikTok. And so I've seen a bunch of this myself. Now, I'm not sure what that says about me and, and the algorithm, but I've seen a bunch of this. And, and here's how it works. So TikTok shows users a steady stream of short videos on personalized feeds, often organized by replacing tick with a content category and ending with talk. And so there are categories like book talk, which is uh, a bunch of TikTok videos about books or therapy talk. That's not one that I get, but therapy talks, a bunch of people talking about, you know, therapy. And so this is this new category of what's happening in Ukraine right now on TikTok is called war talk. And this matters because the app that started with viral dance videos and makeup tutorials has turned into a primary source of information about the war for its young users with some on the ground footage released before it's reported by official sources. Right. And so the lead up to the invasion, TikTok videos offered a firsthand account of Russian troops amassing on the Ukrainian border. Uh, and this was kind of first reported by the Washington Post, but even I saw it on the app. And one video from over two weeks ago showed a dog walker stumbling upon Russian missile launchers that are in transit going towards the Ukrainian border. And since the invasion, TikTok videos like this one showing what appears to be, like a, I'm going to try and describe it here, a missile strike from users who are on the ground in Ukraine. It's offered viewers a visceral sense of what people in conflict zones like Ukraine are experiencing. 
But there's, like with everything on social media, there's a lot of concern over what's real and what's fake. A video purporting to show a Russian paratrooper's drop into Ukrainian territory went viral earlier this week, racking up millions of views, only for fact checkers to uncover that was actually a training exercise from 2015. And TikTok's sophisticated editing features have made the creation of fake clips even easier. For instance, users have layered audio of gunshots over separate footage and falsely passed them off as clips of, of Ukraine. So, Jay, if we're to zoom out from this, why does war talk matter? While past conflicts have played out on television or text-heavy social platforms like Twitter, the speed with which viral videos on TikTok are spreading around the world, it's unprecedented, and it gives viewers a nearly real-time picture of events on the ground. Now, whether that picture is accurate or not, well, that's another story. For our second story, a long-predicted nursing shortage has hospitals across the country scrambling to find staff, and businesses are stepping up to fill the gap and open some purse strings as well. Jay, can you catch Peak Pals up on Canada's nursing shortage? Sure. So experts have long projected that Canada would not have enough qualified healthcare staff to keep up with the needs of an aging population. But governments have put the issue on the back burner, and now the pandemic has brought the issue to a boiling point. So according to Stats Canada, job vacancies in Canada were driven by the healthcare sector with over 40,000 positions needing to be filled. Nurses say the feeling of being overworked and underpaid in dismal working conditions just isn't worth it anymore. And many are taking a step down to part-time employment, retiring or leaving the field entirely to start new careers. Now, current retention bonuses for top-tier staff are ranging from $5,000 in Ontario to $18,000 in Quebec. And here's why that matters to you. Canada prides itself obviously on free health care, but when there isn't enough staff trained to administer or care for on-site folks, private businesses step in. For example, Alberta Health Services contracted nurses from a staffing agency last fall when a staffing shortage forced them to limit the capacity of hospital admissions. Now, the question is, how do we fix this? Well, college and universities can also help address the shortage, and some institutions are drafting students to work alongside registered nurses and hospitals lacking staff. Western University in Ontario has seen a 20% increase in applicants, but has not opened its doors to more students waiting for its share of the $32 million promised by the provincial government before it increases nursing admissions. Now, Jay, what's the big picture of the nursing shortage uh, for Canadians? Well, it's ultimately up to provincial governments to create a working environment that attracts and retains qualified nurses. But whether they're willing to cough up the cash to make that happen remains to be seen, Brett. For our last story, the EU, UK, US, and Canada announced a new round of economic sanctions in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Brett, what did the G7 plus EU propose? Well, there is two huge announcements that happened on Saturday. Now, the first was that the EU is cutting off Russia's access to its overseas reserves. Now, Russia has up to $630 billion in reserves, and this is spread across Germany and France primarily, and then Japan, and then the US last. And the purpose of these reserves is that countries can use them to make up for lost revenue. And so if you've spent too much and you need to fill that deficit, you can then go to your reserves and take out some cash and balance the budget. The second big announcement was that Europe is kicking Russia off of SWIFT, the system that 11,000 banks worldwide use to communicate with each other. Now, kicking Russia off SWIFT means that Russian banks will be unable to send or receive payments from overseas banks, essentially isolating them from the global financial system. Now, for the central bank reserve sanction, we still don't know the details behind it and how it'll be implemented. There may actually be some some carve-outs, but this could have a bigger impact than any other sanction to date, as Russia is now essentially $630 billion poorer than it was on Friday. Now, in terms of direct impact, the value of the ruble could fall even further than it already has. Inflation may increase. 
And we're already seeing people lined up at Russian ATMs trying to get cash out in case there is a, a bank run. Now, overall, this will actually make sanctions bite harder because now Russia doesn't have cash to provide a bit of a cushion to the other economic impacts. On the SWIFT sanction, the EU made sure that there were some exemptions built in. Specifically, energy is still exempt. This will allow European countries dependent on Russian energy, like Germany, to continue to make daily payments to access the gas. And this is estimated to be about $600 million a day, so it's no small change, Brett. There's a lot going on here. Why should Peak Pals be paying attention to these sanctions, Brett? Well, this is obviously a, a very concerning time for everyone, whether you're in Ukraine or Russia or not. And these are actually the most intense restrictions that we've seen in our lifetime. Uh, that includes J2. Uh, and it's hard to say exactly <laughs> what the impact will be on the global economy. But more importantly, we don't really know how Putin will respond either. Putin has a number of economic and military levers at his disposal that he can pull to disproportionately respond to the sanctions. And observers are anxiously awaiting to see which one he deploys. Peak Pals, thanks for making us the most listened to and only daily Canadian business news podcast in the country. If you've got a second, why not follow this podcast on your app of choice and leave us a review. And if you want more Peak, make sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter at readthepeak.com. As always, thanks to Dale Richardson and 306 Media Productions for putting together this episode. Thank you, Dale. And thank you, Brett. And Brett, this is the official last day of February. So spring is right around the corner. I, this is what I was saying. March. It's a transition month. Let's hope so. Have a good day, Brett. You too.